Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to come together to fall underneath your wonderful word, your word that teaches us truth, your word that allows us to comprehend your transforming grace in a deeper and more relevant way with each day we walk our faith in you by the power of your spirit. Father, we thank you for this opportunity. We thank you for your design of the church, that we get to do this with others that love you. What, a, what an encouragement it is. And we, we ask that your spirit would guide us in all truth this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, uh, we are on our fourth, no, no, I take that back, our third week, it's our fourth bullet point on the uh, God's holiness in everyday life. So we're going to go through four, five, and six. Next week we're going to finish up July with the... Uh, Seven, eight, and nine. Uh, last bullet points on this. Um, I'm enjoying it so far. Holiness. I think it, it's it's one of those. Uh, it's good to slow down and really take a look at it, so we can grasp it clearly before moving on. It's so dynamic. It has so many different aspects or facets to it. So with that, um, let's go ahead and get started. Um, we are in bullet, bullet point number four. The holiness of God is meant to be the ultimate quest of our lives. So we'll start, Wayne, all the way in the back. Okay. Four, the holiness of God is meant to be the ultimate quest of our lives. What are you living for? What do you want in life? Hunger for what drives you? What gives you an unshakable sense of purpose? What keeps you working, pressing on, and continuing? What brings you, what things do you value more than anything else? What is the big reason behind everything you do? Why do you do what you do in the way that you do it? Why do you do what you do as a friend, student, boss, parent, spouse, neighbor, citizen, or member of the body of Christ? What in the world are you running after? When I appreciate how you read that, um, you read that at a quicker pace. If, if you've ever been on the stand as a witness and the defense attorney has a shot at you, that's how fast it comes at you. And you're sitting there, uh, 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 you know, like, slow down. Can I just answer one? And they tell you, make sure you only answer one. But what he did, the author here, he was trying to overwhelm you. He was trying to get you to that place where you, you are so overwhelmed, you have to stop. He shocks you into slowing down at the pace of questions you face. Do me a favor. Um, I'm going to ask you, uh, Wayne, to read it again. Because now, now that we've been shocked, listen to how these are big ends. These are questions that will rock your world. If you, if you don't know the answers to these, these are times to sit down with your spouse and talk, or, or at least if you're single, to walk through this yourself. Go ahead. The holiness of God is meant to be the ultimate quest of our lives. What are you living for? What do you want in life? You can slow down this time. Oh. (laughs) We got overwhelmed once. Let's take it a little slower. (laughs) Hunger for what drives you? What gives you an unshakable sense of purpose? What keeps you working, pressing on, and continuing? What things do you value more than anything else? What is the big reason behind everything you do? Why do you do what you do in the way that you do it? Why do you do what you do as a friend, student, worker, boss, parent, spouse, neighbor, citizen, or member of the body of Christ? What in the world are you running after? Great question. All right, let's continue on. 
Another passage points us to the significance of the truth of the holiness of God. The context of this passage frames its practical importance. The Apostle Peter is addressing people who were suffering for their faith. But surprisingly, Peter's letter is not first a letter of comfort, but rather one filled with marching orders to scattered believers. Peter is laying out what it means to live as a believer in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter what you're facing and what human powers are in control. Early in his letter, Peter delineates the core of what it means to live in light of the gospel in this fallen world between the already and the not yet. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you are ransomed from the feudal ways of inherit- feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. First Peter one thirteen through nineteen. Rather than living as one controlled by self-oriented passions from your former life, Peter says you are called not only to obey the Lord, but but to quest to be holy as he is holy. This call is to be your highest value, your constant commitment, the ultimate long-term quest of your life. Peter is so bold as to call people to what is impossible apart from their being rescued and empowered by the grace of the Holy One they are called to be imitated. They are called to imitate. Between your conversion and your home home going, the focus of God's redeeming work is on radical personal transformation. Therefore, when you quest to be holy as God is holy, you are committing yourself to make God's purpose for you your purpose. It is important to understand that we have been saved not just for heaven, but for holiness as well. We cannot ignore God's call or allow ourselves to lower his standard. Pause right there. Sorry about that, Brandon. Let me jump in. It is important to understand that we have been saved not just for heaven, but for holiness as well. Have you made that transition in your heart, in your mind? When I was saved, it was explained to me. Salvation was contextualized. Now, I came from a weak theology, and so this may not be your experience, but it was one that was salvation grants you heaven that's your entrance into heaven that's the goal heaven everything is after this life and it wasn't until later that I I began to realize that the Bible teaches there's a purpose for your salvation here be holy as he is holy It's not this overshoot. That's why so often you run into, or at least I have run into, maybe this has been your experience, you run into the Christian that says, yeah, I know where I'm going. I'm saved. And you know what the fruit their tree bears. And you sit there and you're going, there's something really off here. Because they potentially have that concept of it's a place I'm going. It's it's not in relation to a person that has uh, brought about the salvation and is doing a work in me 
so that I am holy as he is holy. It's more about a destination. It's not, a, it's, you know, getting there versus a relationship and understanding the relationship. And how am I supposed to relate? Well, I'm supposed to be holy as he is holy. So hopefully you, you can start over again, Brandon. That, I, I just want us to see that that statement there, uh, it, for me anyways, again, coming out of weak the- theology, was like, a, that's, that, those are two different seasons of my life that that sentence represents. So let's continue on. It is important to understand that we have been saved not just for heaven, but for holiness as well. We cannot ignore God's call or allow ourselves to lower his standard. In the glory of his holiness, he is the standard for everything we think, desire, say, and do. My fear is that in our pleasure-obsessed world, where comfort is king and temporary personal happiness is the definition of of the good life, this quest of quests will get lost in the endless din of our cravings for the next amusement. The highest human joys are found when we take seriously God's call to a life committed to holiness and when the commitment is applied to the situations and relationships of our daily lives. But this trust gets lost. For example, the best biblical definition of a good marriage is when a husband and a wife are committed to responding to one another in words and actions in a way that is holy in the sight of God. If the goal of marriage were comfort, it would make no sense to put a flawed person next to a flawed person in such a comprehensive relationship. Rather, the struggle of marriage is one of God's most efficient tools in forming us into a holy people. That is his call, and it is possible only by the power of his grace. Okay, so the question I posed again, according to that last sentence, which I underlined right there, according to the last sentence, what is one of God's most efficient tools Informing us into a holy people. Mom and dad. What is it? Mom and dad. Um, stick to the marriage. So as you think about that, um, and when I say stick to the marriage, I don't mean to be disrespectful, Paul. Think in the marriage context. Um, as it relates to a marriage and the people in the marriage, what is God's most efficient tools informing us into a holy people? The struggle of living with another sinner is the most efficient tool. Why? Sanctification. Sanctification. There's a ton of reasons, guys. Uh, Mark, you're going to be jumping around like a piece of popcorn in in the uh, the, the popcorn maker. Wow, we rub up against... Oh, sorry. Sanctification. Sanctification? (laughs) Well, Yes. (laughs) <laughs> um, so in, in multiple ways this is happening right? so our own sin is being exposed um, and we see that in the reactions of our spouse you know sometimes that reaction may not be sinful in them but we also you know we're our, sp- our spouse is sinful and we're going to respond to that typically without grace and show our own sinfulness and so, it's so just, we'll see our sinfulness in our own sins yeah. we'll see our sinfulness in the response to their, the, the spouse's sins yeah. Um, so when they sin, we, we we turn evil for evil. Okay, yeah, so that's good. So it's an just idea. kind of a you know a crucible for teaching us crucible. Uh, so that gives an idea that that's the the point at which is the most difficult. Uh, it, it's it's under the the weight of uh, tension and pressure. There was uh, Wayne had something back there. Yeah, I think my sins look horrible on other people. Uh, I can't see them myself, but when I see it in my spouse or something, it it really it's uh, the, uh, the proverb is steel sharpens steel, so does one man sharpen another, and I I think that 
that that principle applies. Okay. You said you, you, you saw it when you, sin your, you see your sins on another. That would, I'm getting a, a picture in my mind. I sometimes use the word, the mud of my sin. It stains the righteous gown of the one I love. And I can see that stain and all the mud that I've got on them. Or using your steel, iron sharpens iron. Iron also cuts deep. And then there's a deep wound that needs to be healed. And you realize, I did that wound. That was my sin that caused that wound in that other person. PJ? I, I guess I don't, I don't think of my wife's sin as the thing that's making, helping me become more holy. I guess I think of it as I have someone else who knows the standard of holiness, which I'm supposed to be held to, and then holds me accountable for when I miss that standard. Um, so it's actually, it's not the fact that I have a sinner with me, although that's an aspect of it, but it's someone else who understands the holiness of God and the expectation and understands that I'm a sinner and not meeting that expectation and vice versa. So I guess I, I think of more of my sanctification comes and progression comes through um, the loving godliness of my wife rather than the the, the, the sin part of it. I guess I don't think of myself as progressing in sin by being progressing around in sin her or holiness. What, what do you mean? I, I'm sorry. I do not progress in my, my holiness, or I don't think of it at least that way as I'm progressing in my holiness when having to deal with her sinfulness as much as it is uh, the encouragement, chastisement, accountability sure. of so the lack a, of holiness. Yeah, there's yeah. another angle, another facet to it that's helpful. Uh, okay, we've got... Uh, Stephen over here, and we've got Cindy. So I come from a lack of experience in marriage, but uh, I'm just wondering, in the, uh, when Jesus talks about why you know Moses granted a divorce certificate, he basically reaffirmed that marriage should be lifelong, you know, but um, God has brought together, let no man break apart. So I wonder if marriage teaches that in holiness there's that Covenant that is unbreakable between God and man, that even though there's sin, there's still the need to bring that together and keep it holy. And so I know in our culture, you know, divorce is very rampant, and that just reflects maybe our hardness of heart. But no, it's good, good insight. Cindy? So I think, kind of piggybacking on what PJ said. You have these two people in a relationship, and it's going to go both ways. But one sins against the other, there has to be a reaction to that sin, whether the other person, they realize themselves that what they just did was not kind, was mm. not righteous, and, or the other person confronts them on that. But the other part of it is, how does the person who was sinned against respond? Mm. Do they respond with, do they lash back? Do they withdraw? Do mm. they um, harbor bitterness? There's, so it, it goes both ways. There's a, anytime that sin happens, it affects both, and there's reactions from both that are required. And they can be righteous reactions, or they can be sinful reactions. And so, again, it's going to go back and forth between the two. So what I heard you just said, by the way, this is brief back that I'm doing. Anytime we did, we would... By the way, sometimes my wife points out that I talk too much and align it too much with police stuff. If I ever do, just tell me hey, I'm tired of hearing the police stuff. You can knock out the police stuff. But I'll give you an idea. In, in police work, we do 
and we brief back on a warrant. Did I hear you correctly? Because if I get this wrong, something can go very wrong. So I'm briefing back. What if I understand you correctly? Even though it's one person that sins, both people have the opportunity to be sanctified, because the one needs to be sanctified through the the the, the reality of their sin and what God is doing and begging God to do what He can do, what He does do, not can do, what He does do in transforming the heart so it doesn't want to. But the other one has to respond to that sin in a way that's not sin. So you've got two one person's uh, sins, two people have to be sanctified. Got it? So am I right on that? Okay, perfect. So remember, the question he po- the, the thing he says and the question I pose is, according to the last sentence, what is one of God's most efficient tools? Well, the, one of his most efficient tools in a, mar- in a marriage is the struggle of marriage. So if you see the struggle of marriage and sin is only negative, you will be in a place of despair very quickly. There's another book that we won't go over, which seems to be doing all things uh, Paul Tripp right now, Um, and that's um, by my own, I I think, a lot of the man. But he talks about um, when couples that he walks through biblical, excuse me, premarital counseling, because he has done the premarital counseling, he has told them, when you have that problem, come to me. That's why I've done the premarital counseling. And he got one at 6 a.m. the day after they were married. And to me, when I first heard that, I was like, wow, off the tracks already? I mean, that's fast. And his thing was, and this is where, shame on you, Nicholas. He said, I was so thankful they got it that fast. They need a savior, and the marriage is the place that they recognize it. And it was like, oh, that's so good. I was running off of law. He's running off of grace. It's, a, it's just that's transforming. You know, they get it, poof. They realize that they don't, they don't spend the first 10 years of their marriage growing apart from each other because they're good little Pharisees and they're good in their own, their own little world. They realize right away, whoa, whoa, whoa this isn't what I thought it was going to be. 6 a.m. the day after. Wow. That's uh, amazing. Okay. So question number two. What do you suppose is, is one of God's most efficient tools in forming single adults into holy people? Okay. We're not going to get a break here. I mean, I want to, I'm going to, I don't want to overlook the singles in here. What do you suppose is one of the most, he just, we just talked about, what was, what was the marriage? What is a marriage? It's a, starts with an R. Relationship. relationship. Good. So he works through a relationship. So, Brandon? I would just say, like, relationships. Relationships, like, with people of the same sex. So, like, I've got friends that are very willing to call me out on my sin and then being an earnest friend being willing to call out your friends on their sin and okay. work through that okay that's good so we've got uh, the same gender staying together um, now think about this where can you go where's the greatest chance that you'll be around the greatest number of Christians that will that will know that you sinned and need to respond to that in a, in a godly way. And they can be sanctified when you sin, just like in a marriage, because that's what relationship does. So where did, where's the best place to be? From a, the local church, spoken by a single person. Outstanding. Yay, A+. Plus. 
but you're starting to see that the relationship don't don't get tired of the, or exasperated in the midst of the relationship only when you see the difficulties the struggles in the relationship are bringing about sanctification on the two people that are relating if they're both Christians and they're both willing to be sanctified and we don't know, we aren't always willing so the last one here and you'll start to see my pattern here the last question is what do you suppose is one of God's most efficient tools in forming children into holy people? What's the relationship? Mike, put your hand up so we can get it on Mike. Who, who, who wants to take a shot at this? What relationship? Go ahead. Um, Bethany. Parents. What's that? Parents. Parents, absolutely. Which means what's the context? What's the relationship there? What's the, the, the unit that they're in? The family unit. The family, absolutely. Now you're starting to see it. And I, I don't mean to... I want to make sure we, we get this, that holiness happens through relationships. You don't stand alone and become holy. You relate to God first and foremost, but he puts you in difficult situations. He ordains those, and it's through those difficult situations, those, situ- those difficult relations, that you become holy. You become holy more quickly and more efficient if those relations are with Christians. Because they're going to have the courage, because they're called to do so in love, call out your sin so you become holy. Do you see what I'm saying? Okay, good. We're, we're tracking now. Let's, let's keep going. Good grades, athletic skills, acceptance into a prestigious university and a successful career are not high enough goals for your parenting parenting raising mannerly children who don't embarrass you in public is not a sufficient purpose for your parent parental labors here's your parenting goal that you would be a tool in god's hand to producing children who have surrendered their lives to him resting in his grace and condemn sorry, committed to living in ways defined by him as holy. Okay, can I ask you a question? I'm speaking to the parents in here who have children. Is there anybody that has done it wrong like I and my wife have done it wrong and doing it by way of the first sentence there? We're doing it for their good manners. You're doing it for um, acceptance into a prestigious university, successful career. Anybody done that? Yeah, guilty as charged. My... all of our children, if you've had multiples, the latter ones get more of grace than they do of, of the law because God is working on you and sanctifying you and making you realize, move away from their perfect manners and all the pharisaical things you're building into them and move them into a place of grace. And so praise God that he allows us multiple attempts. <laughs> okay, I blew it on this one. Give me another one. Okay. Uh, unfortunately, some of us learn really late. Um, okay, let's, go, let's keep going. Likewise, your sexual life has a goal that is deeper than that you would achieve mutual satisfaction. Here, too, the highest goal of sexuality is not human pleasure, but that our holy God would be pleased by every sexual thing we give our thoughts, desires, and bodies to. God also has a purpose for your money beyond daily provision. Your money is one of the principal ways you surrender your life to his holy call. Paul's been teaching us to do that. Another one of Paul Tripp's books that's based on the Bible where God teaches us that. Let's continue on. 
Now, all the practical implications of this call to holiness are impossible for every one of us. I have no ability to transform my heart. I have no independent ability to escape the sin that still lives in me. I have no autonomous power to harness my thoughts and desires. I have just as much ability to be holy as God is holy as I have to jump high enough to touch the top of the Empire State Building. So this high and holy calling is an argument not only for our desperate need for right here, right now grace, but also for the humbling fact that we will never be grace graduates. Hmm. Till our final day, we will be reaching out for holiness and crying out for grace that alone has the power to produce holiness in us. May we love being holy in God's eyes more than we love all the self-oriented pleasures that tempt us to give our love elsewhere. May we bask in the blessings that result when we make God's purpose for us the purpose of our hearts. Amen. Let's continue on. The glory of God's holiness propels us to give ourselves to his mission of redeeming grace. When faced with the glory of God's holiness and the disaster of his own sin, Isaiah responds not only with confession, but also with willingness to give himself to God's mission. And I hear the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go. That's Isaiah 6, uh, verses 8 and 9. Isaiah does not hesitate. His response has no ifs, ands, or buts. He offers no excuses or negotiations. The holiness of God and the tragedy of sin should form one thing in us, willingness. So real quick, just so we understand, I, again, I grew up in weak theology, a weak Baptist theology. Um, um, I can't think of the song. You guys will have to help me. Uh, send me, the, the, where they, the, the pastor will preach it over and over, trying to, to build up evangelism at the end of a sermon. Um, do, can you think of the, the song? Send me. I can't think of it. Anyways, Isaiah's message isn't one of evangelism. Isaiah's message is one of rebuke. Isaiah's message is you must change your ways. You must repent. That's the message that, that, that he, I don't know if you catch this in the subtleness or if you fall into some of those old hymns that, mean well, but they, they, some hymns miss the mark just because it's a hymn doesn't mean it gets it right, or maybe it's the pastors using it wrongly. Maybe that would be the, the better way to say it. The idea is, well, are you willing to go and bring the message of this is the truth? What you're holding on to is a false system of religion. That's Isaiah's message to them, that they, they understand that. And he lays out who the Savior is, who the suffering servant is, so that they'll have the right context of knowledge. So I just don't want you to, when you hear this willingness to go, oh, send me, it's, it's not actually a call to evangelism. It's a call to, to do what we need to do to help others be right in the Lord. I, I could probably couch it more accurately. It's not only, or it's, it's, I mean, evangelism isn't included in that because probably a lot of the people that Isaiah is talking to are Jews by ethnicity, but not used by way of being part of the remnant. So it's, an, it's, a, it's a, a message that they're not even really understanding at all. 
not being saved. Okay, let's continue. Now you have that context of willingness. What is the willingness to? What's the mission? Now let's go forth. Because remember, repent. In order to be holy, we as sinners need to repent. We need to change. We need to go a different direction than our sin is taking us. So let's continue reading. Here is another area of your life that should be marked by weeping and rejoicing. How is it possible to read the biblical narrative of the destructive power of sin to understand how it has separated us from God and that it ends in death and not weep? Consider how sin bends, twists, and complicates everything in your life and everything around you. Consider its constant trail of destruction. Consider its evil seduction. Consider that sin is the ultimate liar of promising over and over again what has no power to deliver. Consider and mourn. But you also have reason to rejoice, because God loves the glory of his own holiness and has a tender heart toward those he made in his own image. He would not let sin win. He would not let sin have its horrible way. So in justice coupled with mercy, he made a way of for forgiveness to be granted, for sinners to live in relationship with him, and for sin to ultimately be defeated. His holy zeal to pour out his redeeming grace is the most beautiful thing in the universe. Nothing should produce greater joy in us. Rejoice that there is a God of holiness on the throne of the universe and that he has made a way for us to be holy in his sight too. This combination of weeping and rejoicing causes us to give our lives to his service. This means whenever, wherever we are, whatever is going on, and whomever we're with, we look for ways to be ambassadors of his mission of grace. In many ways, sadly, the church is a sleeping giant. Imagine the results if every believer were committed to being on God's mission of redeeming grace. Hmm. But the church is often populated more by consumers than participants. Those who con- whose commitment to, church, to the church is restricted to a formal worship service on Sunday morning, a little money dropped as the plate passes by, and an episodic moments of short-term ministry. Many of us don't share Isaiah's willingness. We view our lives as belonging to us, and we're willing to give God occasional portions. I'm not talking here about vocational ministry, but rather each of us is called to be on God's mission, no matter what he has gifted and called us to do. Okay, the question I am posing to you is not based on you part of a program in a church, you do a particular job in a church, don't hear that. That's what I used to hear from the mainstream evangelical church. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about, he uses the word of redeeming grace, moving from consumer where I, I am getting I am consuming, I am taking in the redeeming grace, to I am participating in it within the body of Christ. So the question is, share a time in your life where God convicted your heart that it was time to move from consumer to participant in God's mission of redeeming grace. In other words, of God's mission of making others holy outside of your own holiness is what I'm trying to get at here. This is a time when you, when you willingly took on the role of God's agent of grace, aiding someone else in God's mission to make us holy as he is holy. And this is meant to be a time of encouragement. 
Is there, do you remember there a time when you were like, I don't even want to go too far and limit what, by my own words, give you examples that cause you to go in a particular direction, where you said, okay, I've got to step in. I've got to help this person as it relates to their sanctification. I've got to help someone be holy. I, I don't know what that looks like. I'm, I'm, I'm trying not to give you too much so I don't restrict you in your thinking. Interesting. It, it could be that it feels like boasting, if you say it, and maybe that's what's holding some of your hearts back. I don't know. It's not boasting. This is designed to be encouragement to others, where you came to that point where it's more than just me. I don't come just to consume. I come to, to be a part of and participate as a willing agent, an instrument in the Redeemer's hands, bringing about redemption in the lives of people other than just me. Go ahead. So I will speak as uh, not the one to boast, but the one who observed. Uh, I remember being a child growing up. We were Christians. We did everything. We attended church regularly. Um, and, um, and then suddenly it seemed like my dad cared a little more about church than usual. And, you know, being punctual was always expected, but now it was a priority. And then making sure we're focused in church and there are just elements. And then suddenly he's teaching Sunday school, our children's Sunday school, and taking on responsibility. And um, from the outside, you just see the growth and sanctification happening there. And this just what feels like some kind of accelerator of faith happening where you went from being Christians to suddenly you can see a leader in the faith and in our community um, at church growing. And so um, I, I think it's hard as a, in retrospect to be a child and say, Hey, someone's becoming more holy. And yet you realize in all of this, that there is this, just sudden change it seemed it seemed like at the time to me a sudden change in which it it was it's time to start doing work in the church and then from there it just grew and built and built and built and then praise the lord we are where we are today but um i've definitely witnessed it firsthand and been blessed by the witnessing of it amen there's more of a public setting there can be certainly be a lot of private settings go ahead uh we got steven over here So, like in reading this, the, the term mission, I think, can be a little bit of a loaded term because I've, in my experience in other churches, it's been abused a lot or misinterpreted, where, like, God's mission is what the idea of some pastor is or some church group that does something. So, very commonly, I've, I've experienced it being God's going to give you this uh, big dream or mm. give you this uh, um, purpose purpose-driven kind of idea (laughs) and so like as opposed to like in scripture we read how paul particularly is encouraging the different churches okay if you are married you know wives submit to your husband husband love your wife children you know uh, raise uh, submit to your parents be be good godly parents if you're a servant you know be loyal to your master if you're a master be loving to your so these are like everyday kind of life experiences so I just wonder if in the holiness of God, our mission is, is still kind of our everyday calling, but we're seeking to live that out as God has commanded in his word versus how the world does it. 
Amen. So, I know that's my kind of view of mission is it may not be going anywhere different than what you're doing, but God has called you and now you're living to glorify him and where God has put you in. Amen. So, it's interesting thought. that, oh, go ahead. Uh, we got one back there, Gerald. And we got Chrissy. Yeah, I, Nick, I'm not sure this is exactly related to holiness specifically, but um, I, I always, you know, think of how God has used one-liners in my life over the years, just, you know, people saying things. And um, I remember um, hearing a, a sermon one time just about service in general, uh, uh, the idea that uh, and the, the pastor said, we are the they. Mm. And, you know, because they are always the people that are the ones doing ministry, right? Mm. And, he, and he was making the comment that we are the they, right? That we are the ones that are to do that. And that really spoke to my heart at that time. The other thing that uh, was, that I was thinking about, and it, it's just been mulling over my mind a lot lately, has been this idea of ambassadorship. That, you know, in Second Corinthians it says that we're ambassadors, and, and an ambassador represents somebody else's interests, mm. right? And so, so God's called us to represent his interests wherever he puts us. And, um, and I, think, I think that does tie into holiness because we're, if we're representing him, we're representing his character. And so, so we're ambassadors of holiness, of his holiness. Mm-hmm. Of his holiness. Mm-hmm. Not just, that doesn't mean we come into somebody's presence and, and that, that might sound like, well, I'm here and I'm the ambassador. Look how I do it. And, you know, I'm holy. No. We are taking his holiness. We are ambassadors of holiness into a fallen world, certainly. So they say it's distinctly different. But his point here is uh, Isaiah was going to his own people. We are the church. If we're overshooting the church, we're becoming a less healthy church. We're missing the mission of the church in the redeeming grace. The transforming grace of the church happens in the relationships in the church. Certainly you get it from the pulpit that allows the information to go out and in Sunday school and those kind of things. But it's then the relating of it into our lives with the individuals of our lives. Chrissy. Um, this might be completely off, but I was just thinking um, the, the Lord's brought me through struggles and trials in my life. And um, they're kind of unique, not a lot of people experience these particular ones um but lately he's put on my heart to volunteer with um people who've also had similar sufferings um and i i'm just really grateful for the opportunity to um to give to others and um allow them to see that like the struggle isn't the end and that there's a healer and um, Mm. how the Lord's been healing me through this process. Um, And and then just going and and being able to um, share that with others, it's it's been providing more healing for me too. um, Interesting. The more you relate to others, the more you sense the healing. Do you hear how that works, church? When you are that ambassador of holiness, when you are taking that redeeming grace of someone else, you can't help but be redeemed. Cindy and I talk about it all the time. When we do, when we marriage counsel, our marriage gets better. When we stop marriage counseling, our marriage moves backwards sometimes. 
It's amazing because when we're, when we're those agents and all of a sudden we're like, oh, gosh, we've forgotten this aspect. Go ahead, Jane. Um, back last fall when Dennis and I first moved here uh, and we started attending here, we were on the receiving end of a lot of ministry and a lot of grace being um, given to us and, and counsel and, and meeting physical needs and, and things like that. Uh, and after Dennis passed and then um, a few weeks later, I started feeling like I didn't want to be on the receiving end as much as I wanted to start giving. Mm. And I really felt that need to be a part of the church on the giving end instead of the receiving end. And uh, there was the need for a pianist, you know. Mm. And people came up to me and said, you sure you're ready to do this already? Uh, you know, are, are you okay? <laughs> and I really needed that way to minister to the church. And then other opportunities that came along after that, I was so thankful for because um, I needed I needed to do that, and I'm right. thankful for this church that just has a lot of ideas and, and opportunities to minister as well as when we have needs, there's people that will minister to us. Amen. So she won't say it, and I won't get into particulars, but what she's leaving out of there is how many people she has re- reached out to since Dennis's passing, and she me- ministers to these women and other people in the church through different other means, all relational all reaching out by way of bringing that re- redeeming grace in relationship to another person's life. That's what he's, that's what he's trying to pr- uh, uh, make us understand here. Let's go ahead and finish. We've got about four minutes. Let's just read out the, the end of this, and um, you can uh, do the explain on your own with everybody or with whoever is in your circle of greatest influence. M- may we be? May we be ambassadors of this holy one. We sad celebrants who give ourselves to his mission of redeeming grace. May mourning mixed with joy in a way that propels us to carry the message of the tragedy of sin and the triumph of grace wherever we go. May the response of each of our hearts be, here, I, here am I, send me. Amen. Oh, sorry. Let's continue. Uh, Number six, the holiness of God is the reason we never outgrow God's grace. The scene in the throne room where the glory of God's earth-filling holiness meets the ugliness of sin argues that you and I never outgrow God's grace. The scene confronts us with the huge moral distance between God and Isaiah. If we were not if it were not for God's forgiveness, the scene would be hopelessly depressing. But it is not hopeless, because we know that the grace that forgives also empowers. The grace that justifies also sanctifies. The grace that convicts also rescues. The grace that delivers us from the power of sin will not relent till we have been delivered from its presence as well. Not just its power, but its presence. Let's continue on. But the task is immense, and the closer you get to your Lord, the more you are aware of how unholy you are. The grace of this Holy One doesn't take dependent people and make them independent, but rather it takes independent people and produces 
in them a deeper and more willing dependency. If we are called to be holy as God is holy, our need for grace will never end. Remember the glory of God's holiness is that he is holy in all that he is. He is holy in every way and all of the time. I am thankful that I have grown in grace. I am thankful that areas of sin have been defeated in my life. I am grateful every day that because of the zeal of God's grace, I am not the man I once was. But I am miles and miles away from being holy in every way all the time. Today, I am more deeply aware of my sin than I was when I confessed it for the first time. I take comfort that there is a biblical evidence that there is biblical evidence that I am not alone. Consider these words from the Apostle Paul. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. 1 Timothy 1, 15 and 16. It's important to understand what Paul is saying with these humble words of self-evaluation. Don't misunderstand. Paul is not mourning just his past life here. He is speaking in the present tense, which is why he talks about being an example of the wonder of the ongoing patience of God's redeeming grace. Mm. You see, the longer you live in the presence of God's holiness, the more you become aware of the depth and extent of your sin, the more you are dependent on God's grace, and the more you are amazed by his patience. When we first come to Christ, of course we are aware of our sin. If we weren't, we wouldn't have run to him. But the sins we tend to confess in the early days are the more overt sins of our unconverted state. The longer we live in the light of God's holiness, however, the more we become aware of the more subtle, deceptive sins of the heart, the nagging idolatries, and places where we lack godly character. As we walk with the Lord, we become more and more aware of the labyrinthine pathways of sin that course their way through every area of our lives. You simply cannot stand before the searching light of the glory of God's holiness with an open heart and walk away proud of yourself. The longer this light shines on you, the louder your cry for grace grows. You cannot stand before his holy throne and think you have arrived spiritually, and that is a good thing. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, that is a good thing, and we thank you that your light exposes our sinfulness. We are thankful that in light of that truth, you have provided redeeming grace. You have provided it in the form of a person, the Holy Spirit, who takes the work of Jesus Christ and applies it in his life. It is yours to will and work in us, and thus we beg you to do that every day step by step, that we might be holy as you are holy. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.